I remember being in New Orleans some years ago and in the main square or maybe one of the one of the main squares anyway, they had people offering to read your palm and tell your future. I mean, I was interested. I'd like to know how the future pans out. So I picked somebody and I crossed her palm with silver, which I think meant handing over a 20 buck note. And then she proceeded to provide an amazingly disappointing performance. It was either boring or wrong or cliched, mostly a combination of the three. I mean, I was really, I really, I did not get my $20 worth. But what if you could see the future? What would you want to know? And what would you not want to know? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Jonathan Brill is an author and a speaker, but perhaps he is the oracle, the oracle that I've been seeking. He is, and this is what it says on his business card, a futurist. And certainly for the first years of his career, he had a real focus around that. He was focused on innovation and what products would shape the future. But then he accepted a new role in a new organization, which he kind of assumed would be more of the same. Years ago, HP hired me as their global futurist. And I thought what that meant was that they wanted me to help them figure out what their products should be in the future, because that's like what I do. So irony alert, turns out that the future isn't as predictable as you might think. Because on his first day, Jonathan's role had already changed. HP was going through a massive transformation that went far beyond the scope of future products. What they needed to figure out was how every aspect of their organization would change over the next decade. So that as they made these transitions, they were prepared to grow over time. And so I ended up building an intelligence network within the company, learning all about economics, learning all about geopolitics and helping the organization kind of squeeze that into an idea about <laughs> what they needed to be moving forward, how to make better decisions. So clearly this is a really big, expansive role. But for Jonathan, there's a delightfully simple way to define it. I help organizations, I help individuals transform to be who they can be, to have their best, uh, their best possible future. With Jonathan hopping from economics to global politics to product development to whatever else a global futurist does, you have to wonder how you'd even prepare for such a role. I mean, what does it take to become an oracle of the future where everyone's future is going to be different? You know, I think it's this is one of these things where people ask, how do you become a futurist? Or or yeah. or <laughs> like what's the career path? I can only tell you mine, and I can only tell you that once I was hired, I discovered that was on my business card. Oh, um, for me, my father's best friend was an industrial designer, and he he was a very successful toy inventor. And so I discovered like, you can just kind oh, of cool. invent whatever future you want to invent. Yeah. Um, and, and that seemed like a whole lot more fun than being an accountant to me. And so yeah. I went down that road and got a degree in industrial design. Uh, while I was doing that, I read a book called Future Shock on uh, the, the power shift Toffler, and the third right? wave yeah. by, by Alvin Toffler. Yeah. Uh, and he was kind of the first really great futurist. And, and, and there's a lot of people who kind of say they do this for a living, but Alvin's ability to 
actually frame up what was going to happen next mm. was stunning. Yeah. And I've spent the time since then working on product innovation, like I said, but, but most importantly, helping companies figure out what is that 10-year path uh, for their organizations. And, and occasionally, I get to help individuals do that, too. I mean, I love having that seed planted by your, your, your father's friend being a toy inventor. What a great <laughs> eclectic role model to show up, which, you know, I've never had a toy inventor show up in my life, or at least not in the first 50 years. Um, <laughs> what, what skills, in, in the very broader sense, do you feel that you accumulated between meeting toy inventor and ending up with a business card with Futurist. I mean, you know, there's a say, there's a saying inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. And I'm yeah. wondering what parts of your past suddenly made sense when you went, Oh, this is what I apparently now do. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and I think one way to think about it is to step back about nine, step down about nine layers to like the foundation of knowledge, how we yeah. know what we know. Yeah. And this is, we'll get out of the geek here in about five seconds, but, but it's in philosophy that the study of how we know what we know is called epistemology. And there are like four major ways we know new things. We can think like a lawyer, which is deductive mm. thinking. We can think like a scientist, which is inductive thinking saying, given these facts, what's most likely to be true today. I've tried the first two and I can't do either of those first two. So carry on. I'm hoping that one <laughs> of the, the remaining two, I can actually the, do this. The, the third one is called Bayesian reasoning. And this is what economists do where they say, okay, there's this inflation thing. We don't really know how it works, but we know what the inputs are and we know the outputs. And so- Okay. So I'm, I'm zero for three. Okay. Yeah. I, so, <laughs> I started off zero for three too. And then the last thing, because I think you were also trained as an artist or a designer or certainly worked mm, in that a little space bit, yeah. for a in, long in, time. Innovation. Yes. Uh, yeah, is is abductive reasoning. So this is asking, what if something we knew to be true was not? Or what if something new came to light? How would that change my opinion? So this is kind of how the artist thinks. That's how I was trained. And, and I have really strong skills uh, there. I learned how to do systems thinking, which is really Bayesian reasoning, looking mm. at a complex system and saying, okay, if we change something in the upper left-hand corner of the Rube Goldberg machine, what happens in the lower right-hand corner? Nice, nice. yeah. Um, and just because of the innovation work, because there's just so much market research stuff, that inductive reasoning, scientific reasoning came forward. Yeah. And when I joined HP, my boss was a JD MBA. He was trained as a lawyer and an MBA. The guy was the rigorous deductive <laughs> right. thinker. Everything must be mutually exclusive, completely exhaustive. You know, <laughs> there must be there must be a search path for to, that gets you to this answer. You've got to be able to prove the theorem, like yeah. all of that stuff you were supposed to learn in in in, in math class that I certainly didn't. Um, he, he drilled that in. And so I think what I do well today is I have a smattering of each of these things and I'm not a master of all, uh, but I know when I'm missing a piece of the toolkit to understand what happens next. And mm -hmm. I have a, a huge network of people I can draw on to ask this question or that question. And so the point is, if you want to master all four of these, you know, you'd need four master's degrees, mm. but 
<laughs> but you don't need that if you understand the shape of the question, the shape of what's missing from your understanding of the future or your understanding of a new problem. What you need is help. What do you mean by understanding the shape of the question? That's an intriguing phrase. When I think about uh, we're, we're about to go deeper into the epistemological I, I, world. Well, I'm just, I'm like, I'm uh, geeking and, and out I, with you on this. So and anybody and, who's not going to geek out, now's the time to stop listening because <laughs> we're going to be here for another three or four minutes at least. And, and I'm about to to invoke Donald Rumsfeld, unfortunately. Okay. So uh, he, he got know what you nailed know. Yeah. by the media uh, yeah. during the, the Iraq war, the US-Iraq war, for talking about, you know, what we know we know, what we know we don't know, what we don't know, we don't know, and and, and what I thought we that was unfair. Know. I thought that was like that's actually a useful way of seeing the world. It's it's been profound for me um, right. because first of all, when you just make that list, it becomes really clear <laughs> where the holes are and right. what you need to do to maximize your knowledge of the situation most mm. effectively. The second thing it does is it tells you what type of problem you are solving. So if you have known knowns, you have all of the facts, you have the entire, what they call in legal world, universe of information, right? Uh, if you know what you don't know, that's a scientific problem. You use uh, deductive methods to say, given the facts right. we have, what is the most likely thing to be true? Yeah. If we don't know what we can know, our unknown knowns, Yes, that's where this Bayesian reasoning, uh, e economic way of looking at the world, and by the way, how a lot of artificial intelligence works. Yeah, it can help us figure out the answers to questions to which we don't have all of the information. Yeah, and then the last piece is what you and I were really trained in, which is abductive reasoning. Right? If we have unknown unknowns, how do we Im imagine the future? Right. right? How do you have those Jules mm -hmm. Verne visions of what could be. That's cool. Those visionary leaps. And okay. and so if you just step back and you make that list of knowns and unknowns, and I'm glad we're not I'm not alone in thinking that this was actually a brilliant <laughs> insight. No, this is um, really helpful. Uh then you can actually say, okay, I need my lawyer friend for this. I need my artist friend for that. I right. need my 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 uh my my economist friend, my computer science mathy statistic mm -hmm. friend over here, or I need my sciencey friend uh, for right. you know looking at known unknowns. So I love how you've taken those four different styles of thinking, which felt fascinating but pretty abstract. But then when you make it knowns and unknowns, it becomes more tangible and kind of immediately measurable right away. Mm -hmm. Then you've got something very interesting, which is like, not just what thinking do you bring to it, but how do you bring your community and your network to help you solve that? Mm -hmm. What have you learned about growing a community? Hmm. Well, I, you, first of all, first off, you're, you're better at it than I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the second thing and we've met at a number of conferences, or I've certainly mm -hmm. walked by you in awe at a number of conferences. Um, first <laughs> thing is go this to places. Conversations not dispelling dispelling yeah. that awe. It's like it's nice <laughs> to last while it can. <laughs> the first thing is go to places with a lot of people you don't know who know things that you don't. Yeah. Uh, the second, keep your ears open 
The third, always find out how you can be of service. This is a thing that's really grown in my life over the last number of years. Uh, I guess probably a mutual colleague, Adam Grant, really yeah. taught me this, that, that when you actively try and be of the greatest service possible as efficiently as you can, you create a change, you create a, a, an emotional shape in the world right. around you. And he certainly has done that for me with a couple of things that were really no skin off of his back right. that changed my life. He blurred my book, Rogue Waves. Uh, yeah. and, and he helped me kind of have this breakthrough that it's not about me and how much I can do and how much I can get. Um, if I have that perspective in my life, it's limited to, by, to how much smarter and harder I work than everybody else. If I have the perspective of how many people can I love, how mm. much help can I provide? Right, My ability to, to attract change, help, service, resources, things I could not have imagined, amazing things I yeah. could not have imagined, grows literally exponentially. It's a network effect. That's great thing. And so when I think about building my network, that's kind of what I think about, you know, who can I be of service to? How can I be of service? What might they know that, that I don't? Um, what, what question might they have that I haven't thought to ask? I love it. You know, um, I, Adam's helped me a couple of times, or more, probably more than that, but two come to mind immediately, which is, for uh, the coaching habit and the advice trap, I pinged him and I said, do you know any good research folks who could help me out with some research on this? And he's like, sure. And just hooked me up with a couple of his students and they did some good work for me. And I was like, and you're right. I have a particular feeling about Adam that I don't about other particular thought leaders because there's been that exchange. And, and by the way, when you look at anybody who talks to Adam, it's a universal experience. Right. But he's done some really deep personal work, right? It's not a facade. It's not yeah. a brand, yeah. you know? He's done some really deep personal work to become that person and to stay in that space mm. as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and it's something I hope for myself. It's something I, I'm, you know, it's... So your, your, hair, your hairstyle is trending towards Adam Grant style. So <laughs> yeah, I know. I still got a quarter inch. For you. Yeah, exactly. I still got I'm, a quarter I'm, inch of stubble, got but too, uh... <laughs> got way too much hair for the Adam Grant look. Damn it, um, Jonathan. Tell me about the book you've chosen to read for us. Yeah, so there's. Um, I'm, I'm a geek. I read a lot, and I think about. Uh, the study of knowledge <laughs> a lot. And I think about the future a lot. And mm -hmm. there's this fellow, uh, Marshall McLuhan, who yes. was a media theorist, who was profound in his understanding of the changing media landscape in the 1960s. Mm. This book was written in 1967. Oh and yet when the World Wide Web appeared, um, his book became really central to a lot of the early thinking about what would change, what would the impact be. And I think that as we move into the next world of artificial intelligence, uh, personal intimate data from, from sensors, uh, new digital currencies, mm. 
I think the questions he's asking and the insights he was having about the world of digitization and electronic media right. are more important than they've ever been. And I think they need to come back. That's so cool. I mean, I was born in 1967, so immediately, and he's Canadian. So I've got a whole bunch of entwinement with Marshall McLuhan and I quote him regularly, but you know, I haven't read this book for a long time and it's very interesting to feel that it's only getting more pertinent um, rather than less. How did you figure out what two pages to read? Um, he talks about, he, he coined the phrase, the global village, mm. which was a, a, a really important phrase in the early 1990s. And I'm going to read the two pages where he coins nice. this term, because I think they're incredibly pertinent today as we think about what happens next. They create a frame um, that stood the test of time. And I, I think it will be a foundation again. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. Jonathan, over to you. Time has ceased. Space has vanished. We now live in a global village, a simultaneous happening. We are back in acoustic space. We've begun again to structure the primordial feeling, the, the tribal emotions from which a few centuries of literacy divorced us. We have had to shift our stress of attention from action to reaction, we must now know in advance the consequences of any policy or action since the results are experienced without delay. Because of electronic speed, we can no longer wait and see. George Washington once remarked, we haven't heard from Benjamin Franklin in Paris this year. We should write him a letter. At the high speeds of electronic communication, purely visual means of apprehending the world are no longer possible. They're just too slow to be relevant or effective. Unhappily, we confront this new situation with an enormous backlog of outdated mental and psychological responses. We have been left dangling. Our most impressive words and thoughts betray us. They refer us only to the past, not to the present. Electronic circuitry profoundly involves men with one another. Information pours upon us instantaneously and continuously. As soon as information is acquired, it is very rapidly replaced with still newer information. Our electronically configured world has forced us to move from the habit of data classification to the mode of pattern recognition. We can no longer build serially, block by block, step by step, because Instant communication ensures that all factors of the environment and of experience coexist in a state of active interplay. The new electronic interdependence recreates the world in the image of a global village. We have now become aware of the possibility of arranging the entire human environment as a work of art, as a teaching machine designed to maximize perception and to make everyday learning a process of discovery. Application of this knowledge would be the equivalent of a thermostat controlling room temperature. It would seem only reasonable to extend such controls to all the sensory thresholds of our being. We have no reason to be grateful to those who juggle these thresholds in the name of haphazard innovation. An astronomer looking through a 200-inch telescope exclaimed that it was going to rain. His assistant asked, how can you tell? Because my corns hurt, he said. 
Environments are not passive wrappings, but are rather active processes, which are invisible. The ground rules, pervasive structure, and overall patterns of environments elude easy perception. Anti-environments or counter-situations made by artists provide means of direct attention and enable us to see and understand more clearly. The interplay between the old and new environments creates many problems and confusions. The main obstacle is a clear understanding of the effects of the new media on our deeply embedded habit of regarding all phenomena with a fixed point of view. We speak, for instance, of gaining perspective. This psychological process derives unconsciously from print technology. Print technology created the public. Electronic technology creates the mass. The public consists of separate individuals walking around with separate fixed points of view. The new technology demands that we abandon the luxury of this posture, this fragmentary outlook. The method of our time is to use not a single but multiple models for exploration. The technique of suspended judgment is the discovery of the 20th century, is the technique of invention was the discovery of the 19th. So I hadn't really realized that it was going to be reading about <laughs> epistemology. <laughs> right, there you go. It kind of felt like really, really prescient that you asked those questions a few moments I know. ago. <laughs> a, that was a great reading. And partly I'm just struck by how much, how dense that is. Like I felt I needed to kind of hit a pause after every sentence just to go, wait a sec, what, what was that? <laughs> and what do I need to understand about it? Um, I'm curious to know what, what is at the heart of this for you? I think he talks about several things that are important in our social media environment where mm. certain people are pushing and pulling those thresholds, the thermostat of our emotion. Um, that we need to be aware of that, uh, that we need to step back and use all of our methods of knowing to say, is that true? And what does that mean in the bigger picture? You know, mm. we have better tools to see and understand information than ever before, but we still need to remember to step ask, back and ask, do my corns hurt? Uh, right. I think his point that we are connected more than we have ever been in the community and a society in a global village. And yet we feel more disconnected than yes. at any point in my lifetime. Mm. I, I think we need to, to understand that, understand why that is and, and how we create love, how we create community uh, in this time where our perspective may be different but our reality is the same. You know, one of the lines I jotted down when you were reading was this move from the luxury of being a public, you know, where you've got different, where you are part of that public and you've got disparate, different points of view to the creation of the mass or the masses, I guess, because there are different masses. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering what, how do I not become just part of the mass? Because quite frankly, it's not that appealing an offer. Mm. The the I think the true answer is that is the great question of our time: how to stay <laughs> engaged and yet be removed. Yeah. Um, 
But if you could just whip that out in three minutes as an answer, that would be great. <laughs> so I had, uh, I, I, you might know this being a coach, but this, who, who writes books, but the second you write a book, you end up finding that you hang out exclusively with coaches. And when you <laughs> hang out exclusively with coaches, what many of them want to do is give you personality tests. True. Um, so since I wrote my book last year, um, Rogue Waves, uh, I've had more opportunities to do personality tests and assessments than you could possibly imagine. I think there's <laughs> one or two of the major ones I haven't done mm -hmm. yet. Um, but one of the things that surprised me in, in something called the Harrison assessment mm. was that uh, I've always known I was a stress monkey. Like I get off on the energy of stress right, and, right. and there's a bunch of childhood reasons for that and whatnot. Um, but I haven't noticed it like in real time and I haven't known what to do if I did. And so this is the piece of advice that a guy named Jim, Jim Povich gave to me. And it's something you may know. And if you do meditation, you may know it. I've never gone seriously into that world, but he yeah. said, Hey, when you see yourself in that moment, when you feel that, the bubbles rising up, mm. do this, just and close the back of your throat. <sighs> Exhale, close okay. the back of your throat. And that's constricting forces you to go into that subconscious part of yourself to say what's going on. And what I've discovered is if I do that for 30 seconds, mm. I'm reset in almost any situation you know, uh, it's changed my life. And so I don't have the grander answer of how to stay <laughs> engaged and disengaged. A great answer though. I know that piece to be true for me. Yeah. I think it's just, there's a physiological truth to that. I'm, I'm reading a great book at the moment by Amanda Ripley called high conflict. Mm. And she defines high conflict as that conflict that gets ramped up and seemingly un de-escalatable. I'm sure that's not right. a word, but you know what I mean? So she's, yeah. you know, interviewing in Colombia where, you know, with the FARC guerrillas and in the gang spaces in Chicago and other places as well. Yeah. And talking about de-escalation, one of the things she talks about, and it's bigger than this because she's talking about systemic conflict, but mm. she's, but breath is one of those things, which is like breathing just, bringing mind to, to breathing, you just immediately calm your, your nervous system and can gain a, pers a perspective where you're a little bit out of the fight or the stress mm -hmm. rather than in it. I, that's been true for me. And mm. when, when you think about that, that second piece, and I'm not an expert on conversation or conflict yeah. negotiation. Um, we do have a friend, mutual friend, Misha Globerman, who is though. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he talks about, and, and the Harvard Negotiation Project talks a lot about this too. Um, and and I, I say this because we've done work together and I do innovation. I'm very uncomfortable and unknowns. A lot of people aren't. And, and so when you know, when you get to that point where there should be conflict, there was this really mm. interesting thing where we would pass through it and it wouldn't happen. It was the most yeah. bizarre experience. 
Um, so right. I actually ended up taking his, his uh, class on, you know, conflict. Yeah. How to talk to people and conflict. How to, yeah. talk, how to talk to people. And, you know, I, I ended up working with him because I wanted to understand what just happened because it keeps happening right. and I don't know how to do it. And if I did it, it would change my life. Right. And right. what I've come to realize is there are kind of three conversations that we're having about any situation with another person. Mm. What happened? Uh, how do we feel about it? And what happens next? Right. And when you start having two of those at the same time, or you start having them in the wrong order, <laughs> man, nothing happens. Right. Right. And this is what Misha used to do. He'd say, okay, I know we're about to come to that point. Cause if you've been a consultant for a long enough, you know, you're about to come to that point. He'd say, Hey, here's how I'm feeling about this process. How right. are you feeling about it. Yeah. As a result, he separated what's happened from mm. what happens next from our emotions. And we stepped into that emotional space and I was able to say, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then he was able to come back and say, okay, so I don't know that I fully understand your context. I've, I've heard you. Here are some, some low risk, high value ways, just as a straw man, that I might be yeah. able to help remove yeah. those blockers, those fears, those pains, those whatever. And we would just go right past each other without stress. Nice. It was the most amazing <laughs> experience. And so yeah. as we move from being individuals, from needing to take right. others' perspectives, I think that's a really powerful way of thinking. Yeah. What strikes me in this conversation, Jonathan, is I'm drawn to two different levels to try and negotiate this societal force around an overall of information and a conglomeration into mass. Hmm. Um, one is this kind of individual relationship. And I love, you know, when you're referencing back to Adam Grant around, you know, who do I love and how do I make a connection and how do I be of service? So there's that individual piece. But in the in the reading, you, um, Marshall McLuhan talks about um, the power of pattern recognition mm. and that ability to kind of think more broadly and systemically around that. Right. Uh, I'm wondering what you can, what do you know about system thinking or, or pattern recognition? And how is that, how might you develop that capacity to do that? Mm. That's a great question. So um, that's a lot of what I do today is help companies do that. Um, yeah. And it turns out that if you have a process for looking at new situations, for looking at the future, you mm. can know a whole lot more than you imagine, is how I like right. to say it. It's my snarky way of saying it. But um, it's good. It's a good marketing you know, what, line. <laughs> what, what, what I talk about in my book, and, and you know, other people have said parts of this before, is you know, you need an awareness of mm. what's happening, right? You need an awareness of uh, what could change and what would happen if those things collided. We look individually at things like you know, demographic shifts, artificial intelligence, uh, inflationary pro pressure new monetary, you know, uh, regimes that are going to have to happen. And we look at these things individually, mm. right? But what happens when they collide? 
What happens right. when you need automation because of the aging population? Uh, it's harder to grow because of these new monetary policies as a business. How do you deal with those things colliding at the same time? Right? What happens when you take a social trend, an economic trend, a technological trend, and, and they collide? What, what does that mean for you? So the first thing is is really mapping those those things out, and that's a lot of what I do, uh, purportedly as a futurist. Um, <laughs> the, the second is getting specific about what that means for you. The first piece is reality yeah. testing, and it's what they call the rogue method. So reality testing. We just talked yeah. about epistemology, knowns and unknowns, blah 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 blah. That's a lot of that first step is saying, given the universe of what we know could be true. Mm -hmm. What do we actually know about that? As the world moves faster, mm. as it gets more, as it gets more connected, mm. right? The things that used to be true, the things that we know that used to be true, increasingly won't be true. So, how do you reality test? Then, how do you observe systems? A lot of times, I like to create what I call a spaghetti diagram. Yeah. Where I say, okay, here are the things we know are in this system. All these little nodes, like blocks in space, black squares in space. And then I like to draw, how are they connected to each other? And then you can start to ask, you know, okay, well, if A goes to B, goes to C, you know, if the ham bone, ham bone goes to the knee bone, goes to the leg bone, and you yeah. put, you know, whatever, you know, into the system, what what comes out? Or Or if you move one of these... Uh, channels one of these one of these pieces of the network somewhere else. What would happen next? It's different, yeah. Playing with that helps you understand the system. That helps you generate the range of plausible futures, right? There's a lot of people mm. out there who who talk about kind of science fiction futures, things that could never, well, science fantasy futures, things that could never happen. But if you do kind of a straight line analysis, it looks like they could, right? Yeah. Uh, but there's going to be some upper threshold, so. Solar power, for instance, people talk about solar power. It's going on this hockey stick, right? Yeah. But the reality is, solar power equipment is made of atoms, and and the polymers are going to have you know core limits, and the aluminum is going to have core limits, and they have to be installed. So there are limits to how much that technology mm. can actually grow, even if the technology itself is resolved. So you've got to look at this from a systemic viewpoint. Right, and then what right. is that? What are those range of possible futures, right? Like it stops, I'm wrong, something happens yeah. in the middle. What does that mean for what Love you that. do? And what are the yeah. key steps you can take, right? To, to uncouple your uh, future from, from, from any downside. Like often it's simple nice. things like, you know, like in a contract, right? Getting paid before you buy, before you buy equipment, right? Um, and so if you can do those things, you can you can radically shift the likelihood of a good outcome versus nice. a bad, bad outcome. And then the last piece is experimentation. So yeah. you and I have been in the innovation business for quite some time. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I perpetually see is people want to innovate either against a, a bogeyman problem, right? Oh, AI yeah. is going to destroy us. Uh, or they want to innovate against something that killed them in the past, right? It's a business, right. business continuity problem. I look at it innovation at innovations like investments, right? You want to make some high risk, high opportunity bets, like let's put some money on Bitcoin. It might be a thing. Yeah. Uh, you want to make some medium risk, medium opportunity bets. Let's let's buy a Fortune 500 index fund, 
right? Yep. And then you want to make some counter cyclical bets. So you want to buy some insurance so that right. if the first two things are wrong, you still have a backup plan. And you want to time these so that no matter what happens, you, know, you get the right payoffs on the right timeline. So, so you should be treating your innovation best investments uh, nice. like a pharmaceutical firm does, where they start off with 100 molecules and they put them yep. on on a horse race. And, and, and that's <laughs> how they, even though they don't know what will succeed and what will fail, that's how they yeah. get the reliable outcomes. And so that comes into five points, reality testing, yeah. observing systems, generating futures, uncoupling threats and opportunities, and right. experimenting. And conveniently, that is rogue. That, that the acronym is rogue, right? So thus rogue waves the book. Convenient, but not, not entirely accidentally. Um, <laughs> hard, uh, hard work was done to get those words into an I acronym. Totally, I totally, <laughs> I've created acronyms in my time. I know, I know what's been, how you've been moving things around to make that happen. Um, but perhaps as a penultimate question, um, yeah. Your book is called Rogue Wave. We know in part that's because of the acronym that you've created there. But what is it about a rogue wave that is a powerful metaphor? So in the deep ocean, 100-foot tall walls of water can pop up literally out of nowhere when individually manageable waves collide. Mm-hmm. And all of that energy focuses into one place and, and one time. And so I think that's a really great metaphor for what happens in the real world. And, and mathematically, the same sorts of models are applied to things like financial markets and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. They're called nonlinear Schrodinger equations for the geeks among us. Not that <laughs> I know how to do them. Um, but my, my point is that when you start realizing that you get these convergence points, these singularities, yeah. and, and that those are the points when uh, some companies create radical growth and some companies don't survive, mm. uh, you start to shift the way you think about your business and the same thing in your life, right? There are, there are these moments, there are these inflection points that you don't know what they are or why they are. You can probably mm. ask a bunch of old folks what they hadn't expected that changed their lives, but maybe you have right. a kid by accident. Maybe you, maybe you have multiple sclerosis. Maybe you know you're in a yeah. car accident. Maybe you win the lottery. You know yeah. who knows? But but in those cases, the question you should be asking leading up to it is, you know, how do I increase my optionality and my potential no matter what happens? Mm. Right? And I think that's the key to innovation. It's being really clear about what the risks are that we're facing, not what have we faced before or what is the, the venture capital hype cycle telling us we should, we're going to be facing next, but really getting clear about what those challenge points are for us, nice. for our organization, saying for our lives and saying, okay, well, what simple things can I do over time? Small mm. changes can I make to radically increase my optionality and my potential moving forward? Jonathan, it's been such a rich conversation. Thank you. Um, My final question is this, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between the two of us? (laughs) I think that it's a very analytical person that you might've noticed. Um, At the end of the day, change, isn't about the math 
and it's not about the facts. It's about trust. It's about love. It's about the ability to have conversations that might be hard. And what I've discovered in reading your books and being on this journey with all of these coaches um, is that when you take these two things and you put them together, right, the human process, the human journey, and the innovation process and the innovation journey, that's how we change the world. That's how we make a better place for all of us. Jonathan's got me thinking. So how well am I understanding risk? And what do I need to do and who do I need to be to increase my optionality and my potential? Now, I don't have the answers to that, but it does remind me of something I was taught years ago about building reserves. Financial reserves, sure, but also emotional, intellectual, health, and relational reserves. Places where you've invested into so you have additional capacity. I mean, in a single moment, it might be you've invested in the capacity to take a breath before reacting. Or in the shorter term, it might be investing in finding the next thing to learn. For instance, I'm reading two great books at the moment, Outlive by Peter Attia and Brain Energy by Christopher Palmer. I'm learning how to be more resilient, healthier, in a more profound way in the last decade or two of my life. Perhaps in the biggest scheme of things, it might be committing to nurturing your friendship group so it's growing rather than ossifying. But always, it's about this laying down of reserves, saving, investing, increasing optionality, and increasing my potential. Now, if this interview struck a chord with you, can I suggest two others that you might enjoy? One is What Technology Promises by Azim Azhar. That's episode number 56. Azim Azhar, he's got a, a kind of huge podcast and a huge newsletter about exponential and scale. Um, which I subscribe to and I find very interesting. But also Pascal Finette, that's episode 112, which weirdly enough I've just noticed is exactly twice 56, which is what Azim's episode is. Um, episode 112, have we cancelled our future? He is, I guess, another futurist. He thinks about that stuff. So again, another really interesting conversation that you might enjoy picking up. If you'd like more of Jonathan Brill, you can find his book, Rogue Waves, where you buy books. And uh, his website is jonathanbrill.com. Um, and if you want to connect, his invitation is that you connect with him on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your support and encouragement of the podcast, for loving it, for rating it, for ranking it, for writing reviews of it, for passing episodes on, the ones that you liked, and going to your friends, hey, listen to this, you might enjoy it. You're awesome, and you're doing great. <laughs>